Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for the second of two podcasts is Dr. Marlene Schwartz, deputy director of the Rudd Center and leading scholar and expert on issues of nutrition and children. What we're going to talk about in this podcast are what what we refer to as food rules, or we could talk about food myths as well, things that people believe about food and feeding children that may or may not be true. And most people um, aren't familiar with what research exists on this and and what is myth and what is fact. So let's talk about some of these extremely interesting. Um, So first, let's talk about the, the general idea that kids won't eat fruits and vegetables. Well... One of the things that actually really is frustrating to me as um, both a researcher and a parent is when people make blanket statements like that. So typically you hear that from someone who is trying to convince you that you need to um, somehow make your food more fun or add, you know, marshmallow fluff to it or, you know, make it brightly colored because they say, you know, kids aren't going to like these foods as is. And unfortunately, um, a lot of parents seem to believe this. And the, the problem is that when children are born, they prefer sweet flavors. They find bitter flavors aversive. And that's very much a biological phenomenon. But what happens fairly quickly is that as children are exposed to different flavors, they get used to them and they actually learn to prefer whatever they've been exposed to the most. And so that's why you have children in different parts of the world perfectly happy to eat extremely different types of foods and different flavors. So I encourage people to remember that, that, you know, it's not like chicken nuggets have existed for the last, you know, two million years, that we really have evolved in a way that allows our children to grow and enjoy eating a whole range of different foods. So when it comes to fruits and vegetables, I think that parents need to remember that fruits and vegetables have been around as long as children have and that children have always eaten them and really now is no different. So it's just important to keep giving them to your children to, um, you know, you don't want to force anyone to eat anything, but basically to give the message that this is part of the meal. You know, we have fruit and we have vegetable as part of our dinner, let's say, and that you can depend on their hunger to be your ally, that if they're hungry, they will eat it. Um, And it sounds a little, you know, rough to say, you know, basically, this is what you're having, and you can't have, you know, other things. But I think that you want to present an array of healthy foods, including fruits and vegetables, and then, you know, let your child decide how much to eat of them. One number that you hear a lot is that kids have to be exposed 10 times to a new taste or to a new food in order to get accustomed to it. Would you, would you describe the research basis for that? And is sure. That, that that number does get around a lot. That is based, uh, as far as I know, on some early work by Dr. Leanne Birch at Penn State University. And she did studies with very, very small children. I think they may have even, some of it, they may have been infants. And that's basically what she did. She would expose them to different flavors and then see how long it took for them to start to prefer that flavor. And 10 times seemed to be the magic number. Now, I can tell you that in my house, I tell my children this all the time. And whenever I try to encourage them to eat something that they don't 
don't want, their response is, I have tried that 10 times and I don't like it. So I think that um, it's not going to work for everything, that there may be things that really your child never will like, just like there are probably things that all of us don't like that much. But I think it's a good rule of thumb. I mean, it's you don't, you're not giving up quickly if you actually try 10 times. And I think to teach your children that just because you don't like something the first time, that doesn't mean that you should just give up is an important lesson. What about the idea that restricting foods around the house um, creates a sense of deprivation in kids and that they'll just eat like crazy when they go to friends' houses or get out of the house and go away to college or something? Right. So this is something, again, that I hear all the time. Um, and I think it really gets down to the details in terms of what do you mean by restricting and what is the overall environment like? So this is what I mean. If you are in an environment where you're constantly being exposed to a whole array of unhealthy foods and you can see them and they're in front of you, and yet somebody says to you, you can't have that while you're looking at it, then what tends to happen is a phenomenon that psychologists call reactance, where you sort of want the very thing that you can't have. Now, the difference, though, is if you're in a situation where you simply don't see those foods because they're not in your house, for example. So my house, you know, we don't have, let's say, um, you know, candy sitting around. And I tell my children, you know, what sorts of foods we have, dessert foods, there's things that they can have, but there's things that I just don't buy, like sugared cereal. And it's not like they're looking at the product and I'm telling them they can't have it and they're feeling deprived, but rather it's just simply not, it's not there. And I think under those circumstances, it's different because there is truth to this out of sight, out of mind when it comes to food. And people basically want what's around them. And if they're not really thinking about it, they generally don't spontaneously decide that they want it. So what about this idea that kids who don't have that around the house are going to go crazy for it when they're out of the house? You know, that's a really good empirical question, and we have tried to test that. So um, one of the ways that we tried to test it was by looking at college freshmen when they came to Yale and asked them about what they ate when they were in high school. And then we looked at what they ate when they came for the fall semester and then how they were eating in the spring semester. So what we found in this study was that basically when people go to college, everybody's diet deteriorates. So for the first semester freshman year of college is generally not a good year. And part of it is, I think, the freedom and being away from home and suddenly going from being in a house to being in a cafeteria where you have so much food available. But what we then found were two important things. One was that when we looked at what the children were told they couldn't have growing up, and these were things like sugared cereal or, um, you know, other sorts of, you know, uh, sort of fast food or things like that, and then we looked at what they were eating in college, the kids who were, quote, deprived were no more likely to be eating those foods than everybody else. So it may look like they're eating a lot because it's more than they used to eat, but they basically ate at the same level as everyone else. But then what I think is the most important finding was that by the second semester, everybody sort of went back to the way they'd always eaten. So we found that, you know, for example, kids who grew up eating whole wheat bread were eating whole wheat bread. Kids who grew up eating oatmeal for breakfast were eating oatmeal for breakfast. And so the habits and sort of preferences that your child learns while they're living at home do carry on later in life. But sometimes it may take a little while for that to become completely evident. So parents shouldn't worry, based on what you've just said, 
of having <clears throat> just healthy foods around the house for fear of the kids going crazy later when they're on their own. Right. So basically the story is everybody goes crazy. Your kids will not go more crazy than anybody else's kids. But in the end, your child will still be better off because they will have really developed the habits of eating those healthier foods. And are, they are very likely to sort of go back to that type of eating as time goes on. This idea of restriction and then going crazy gets played out in school policies, I know as well, where some, some people have said, if you just take the sodas out of schools, kids are going to rush from school to have 15 sodas to make up for what they didn't have at school. Is there research that would address that issue? We have actually done a study to look at that as well, um, because I heard that argument a lot when we talked about taking soda out of schools. And so what we did was a study, this was here in Connecticut, where we went into a, a bunch of middle schools. And in each town, we had two middle schools. And in one middle school, they actually took out the unhealthy beverages and um, snacks. And in the other one, they kept them the same. And we looked both before and after this policy change, asking kids what they were eating at school and what they were then eating at home. And what we found was extremely clear that when the foods are available at school, kids eat them at school and they eat them at home. So kids were eating potato chips at school and potato chips at home. When you take it out of the school, the kids obviously are not eating the potato chips at school because they're not any they're not there anymore, but they're eating essentially the same amount of potato chips at home as they were eating before. In other words, there's no compensation. It isn't as though they have this internal potato chip monitor that is like keeping track of how much they've had and somehow tells them that they need to double up at home because they didn't have any at school. We found that for every category, cookies, ice cream, other frozen desserts, we looked at a whole range of foods and beverages and the finding was always exactly the same. So I feel quite confident that Again, if it's not in front of you, you're less likely to eat it. I mean, that's been shown in study after study. And so the idea is that the school is just a setting where those foods are not there. Kids aren't going to think about them twice as much because they're absent. And then when they go home, they're going to eat them if they're still at home too. But the way that I look at it is the fewer settings that a child is exposed to where those foods are around, the less they're going to eat. So my kids, they don't, they're not exposed to soda at school. They're not exposed to soda at home. Now, they may go to someone else's house or go to a party and there's soda, and they may have some. They're not going to drink, you know, 17 liters of soda at one party. And so there's no way at the end of a period of time they will not end up benefiting from the fact that they've been exposed to less soda. They will definitely still have a net decrease in the amount that they're consuming. Let's go back to what parents are doing with their children. Um, I know parents can, can often find themselves tugged in different directions. On one hand, they don't want to have a climate of restriction, and some parents worry about focusing on weight too much, even to the point where an eating disorder might come about. And on the other hand, they don't want kids eating unhealthy foods and developing obesity as a problem. How do parents walk that line and what do you think are the right the right kind of rules to follow? I mean, I think that that's a really a really important question and a really hard one to answer um, simply because it, it does depend on a lot of different factors. So let me just explain what some of those factors are. Um, there are some children who I think really are born with an inherent uh, inherent ability to self-regulate. So parents, you know, if they think about their children, typically if they may say, I have a child, you know, he'll have two bites of cake and then he gets up and walks away. So these children exist. 
those parents are lucky. <laughs> so those parents don't have to worry so much about helping that child learn how to self-regulate. At the same time, if you talk to parents, invariably, you will have parents who say, but my other child here will eat that cake until it's gone, no matter what, even if they're completely full, even if it ends up giving them a stomach ache. So there are other children who I think have a very difficult time self-regulated and are heavily influenced by the palatability of the food and the availability of the food. So I think parents' jobs are different, and I think in the second case is actually, it takes a lot more work. But what I really advocate is that parents, first of all, food is wonderful and fun and a way for families to be together and it can be, you know, a way to, you know, be creative. There's so many positive things about food. So you don't want it to turn into, you know, this kind of diet mentality where you're, you know, counting calories and, you know, trying to make sort of take all the joy out of eating. So you want family meals to be fun and joyous. You want to involve your children in picking recipes and going shopping and making things. Um, and be very, you know, positive about that. At the same time, you want to really focus on having what, you know, my kids would tell you I call real food, like not something that is packaged that was made in a factory, but, you know, things where you're using real ingredients and and making meals um, together. So that's the home environment that you want. And then the second part, though, is you also want to make sure that you make it easy for kids to have normal portion sizes. So one thing that I try to do is... Um, you know, if you're going to have something that people can really easily overeat, like let's say spaghetti, you don't make, you know, the entire box of spaghetti if there aren't that many people in your family. You make enough spaghetti so that each person can have one serving and then that's the end of the spaghetti. And that way you're not caught in that battle. What you don't want is to be standing there, you know, over your child while they have the bowl and they're taking the spaghetti out saying, no, 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 you can't have any more spaghetti. That, again, that's the reactance when it's in front of them and they and they can't have it. So you want to create a situation where everything that is in front of them they can have and you know that there's the right portions and the right quality food in front of them. Um, my kids have also know this logic and have used it against me at times where if for some reason there is some unhealthy food and they see it, they'll be like, I already saw it. It was already in front of me. You have to let me have it now. So, you know, I do think that, you know, you have to have a sense of humor about these things and you can't be too rigid. But you really want to sort of explain to your children as they get older, they can understand more that you want, you know, you want there to be a lot of healthy foods around and you want them to be able to enjoy them. Well, I really appreciate you talking about these issues because they're, they're issues at the forefront of thinking of lots and lots of parents, and it's really important, not only in the, the health of their children, but the relationship they have with their children. And it's nice to hear you say that eating can be fun, it can be joyous, the foods can be wonderful, but they can be healthy at the same time. So thank you very much. Thank you. Our guest was Dr. Marlene Schwartz, Deputy Director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. If you visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, you'll find a variety of resources, including an email newsletter that gets dispatched on a regular basis, uh, news alerts about what's happening in the field, and, of course, a list of all the excellent podcasts that we've recorded. Thank you.